Hello, everyone, and welcome to We Have Solutions, an AT Help Desk podcast brought to you by Neil Squire, a podcast where we talk about assistive technology, disabilities, breaking down barriers to accessibility, and more. Today, we are joined by Ainsley Congdon. Ainsley has worked at the Learning Disabilities Association of New Brunswick in many capacities since 2017 and has been the executive director of the organization since 2019. Coming to LDANB as a former classroom teacher, Ainsley brings with her a unique hands-on perspective on learning disabilities in the classroom. We talk learning strategies, types of accommodations, psychiatric assessments, and why it's so difficult to get one in New Brunswick, and much more. So, uh, although although we've we've met in passing a couple times, uh, I'd like you to maybe start by just kind of introducing yourself. And and although we've met in passing, I don't really have a really good feel for how you sort of came to be the executive director of LDA and B. And and I'd like to kind of learn more about that path. Sure. So I started um, at the Learning Disabilities Association of New Brunswick in 2017, I was hired as the literacy specialist and event planner, if you will, uh, as we had a symposium in 2018. Right. And so I was in that capacity uh, until January of 2019 when I became acting executive director. And we were in a period of transition with our previous uh, ED, Andre right. Deschen, yeah. uh, with his retirement departure. Um, and so I was approached by the board um, to see if I would be acting executive director. And so I held that title until the fall of that year. And then I became, you know, full executive director. Oh, okay. So, so a bit of a trial by fire. They decided they, they wanted to keep you around, huh? Pretty much. I think <laughs> at that point, at that point, I still had um, like the most knowledge and history of the association at that time, which wasn't much. And, yeah. you know, we're a small org. There's still yeah. just three of us here full time. And so, you know, there's a lot of history that gets held with employees. And so, yeah, I became ED. And it was something that I was looking forward to doing as, as a challenge, something different. It was not what my plan in life was going to be right. for my career. Um, and it's definitely um, a place I'm happy I settled at. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool, and uh, yeah, it's definitely a lot of lot of growth and challenges and responsibility, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, and if you're if you're willing to talk about it, I'd like to know a little bit about like your background. Like, how did you come to LDA and be in the first place? So I started. Um, my goal was to be a teacher, and mm -hmm. I knew knew that I wanted to be an educator. Um, from the time I probably started school and even beforehand with playing school with my my younger sisters. Mm -hmm. And so that was my career path. I did my BA at um, Mount Allison. I did my BED at the University of Prince Edward Island and jumped right into supply teaching in the Tanchmar area. I ended up with a small contract at the middle school and stayed there until about 2009. And then, you know, life took me to Ontario and yeah. When we came back in 2015, I had two kids, a husband and a dog, okay. and I I didn't want to go back into the world of supply teaching. And so mm -hmm. I found the position here and uh, and got started. And the, the neat thing is, is when I was doing my BED, I had, you know, we had to write a letter to our future selves. 
And my thought was that I wanted to be a professor of education and to teach teachers to be teachers. Right. And it wasn't until I became executive director that I realized I was doing that with all of the professional learning. And I had goosebumps that day and I went, oh my gosh, I'm doing what I wanted to do in a completely roundabout way. Um, And so when I say I settled here, it means that I'm happy and content and it's where I'm meant to be. Right, settled in the best possible way. I gotcha. Yeah. So so you went from BED to ED, that's not bad at all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not what I was expecting. And and the world of nonprofit is is completely different. And mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't something I had any experience with beforehand. Um, and so I had to learn a lot really right. quickly um, right. about this whole other world and how to work with other partners and government and funders and sponsors and all of those other things. I had the skill set to do it. It was completely mm-hmm. different. But um, it was a lot of relationship building as a new executive director that I right. had to do. That's that's kind of funny. It kind of remind that's kind of similar to my own trajectory in terms of you know I graduated uh, school uh, UMB with a degree in English and and uh, creative writing and then kind of all these things transpired in my life and now I'm writing for. Uh, for my organization, for Neil Squire. So it's kind of funny how we we have these goals in our mind and uh, the pathway might not be what we expect, but sometimes we find ourselves, you know, where we wanted to, huh? Yeah. And, and you know, that's interesting because that's what I tell a lot of parents, you know, who come who are concerned about their child's future and what that might look like for them because that child has just received a diagnosis of a learning disability. And I always say they will get to where they want to go. They will find the job that was meant for them. Will it be a straight shot uh, to that position or to their career? Probably not, because it's right. clear that ours hasn't been that way. Right. And so I fully believe that that kids will get to where they want to, um, when it comes to their career. They, they just have to get through school, you know, and, and figure out what they want to do. Well, that's a great outlook. And I think we're certainly we're living in a time where uh, I think employment hasn't been, it's never been more flexible, has it, with the remote work and, you know, the uh, duty to accommodate being a lot more known and adopted, I think. So I definitely see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And I mean, the the flexibility, you know, we have standing desks and, right. you know, there's there's YouTube videos of people who are like, I walk on a mini, you know, treadmill while I do my work. And so for those that need movement you know workspaces should have and allow that kind of you know the opportunity to do so yeah exactly um i'm also curious uh a bit about the kind of the history of lda the learning disabilities association and then how that came to be in new brunswick and and a little bit about that can you speak to that at all very vaguely. Yeah. Um, so, so we we are under the umbrella of the Learning Disabilities Association of Canada, LDAC. And right. much like ourselves, they are in a period of regrowth. And I mm-hmm. think that's important for any kind of organization um, to always be changing to meet the needs of, of your clients and the people that you serve. And so, you know, our clients are not the same as they were five years ago. So they're in a period of regrowth and and so are we. And so LDMB has been around since um, 
2020 was our 50th anniversary. Right. And so we have been in the province. We have a history of being in this province. Were we as active or as vocal um, a few years ago as we were? I don't think so. I think goals were different at that time. Mm -hmm. And so my main focus since being here has been the advocacy piece, the education piece for parents and for for educators um, so that they can learn to serve students and help students that have learning disabilities. Right. We're still really connected with employment supports and services um, for adults. And, you know, we try to tailor our support for adults as much as possible. Right. Um, and that brings me to a question. What what do you see like for your client base, uh, students versus adults? Like what do you see in terms of percentage? What Just roughly, of course. Oh, it's probably... 90% youth. So gotcha. um, by youth, I mean like K to 12 mm-hmm. um, and, and their parents or guardians. And then the rest would be adults that right. might do a quick self-referral or they're looking for some information, right. but the bulk of it has been with kids. And, and that might be due to my background as an educator right. and the shift in this province to literacy support. So, I mean, we kind of fit into that change um, quite easily. Right. And I feel like too, uh, certainly the um, seeing LDs manifest, uh, it, you know, it, it makes sense that they would manifest themselves in the school system. You know, by the time you're an adult, you've probably, uh, if you've had an LD that's been, you know, undiagnosed, you've probably had some of your own little strategies and uh, and ways of, you know, working around it. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, there's maybe that gap uh, could be partially explained by that. Or what do you think about that? Does that make sense? It, it does, definitely. And, you know, we'll have parents that come in uh, with their child and are like, I think there's something wrong. Or they learn like I do. And I had a really hard time in school. So there's parents that are making a connection to their child's current struggles to their own. Right. And so, you know, those are the parents that are undiagnosed and did find those coping strategies to complete high school or whatever post-secondary training they have afterwards and are successful in their careers and their jobs, but they're seeing their kids struggle um, with their reading, with their literacy skills, with their numeracy skills. And so, you know, they can, you can see that family history um, that's, that's there. And so, I mean, we do have adults that are coming through um, a contract that we have with Avenue and B, which, which provides as psychoeducational assessments for adults. So those are 18 plus who are struggling at post-secondary or with employment training and they can't figure out why they can't, you know, why are they having difficulty with their employment training? And so they have an LD that was missed when they were in school. Right, right. Um, Let's, I want to talk a bit about LDs and just kind of dive in there. So, you know, thinking of the potential, uh, consumer of this podcast that's not that familiar with LDs. Let's talk about a few of the common ones, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. What do you so, see the most of? Um, it would definitely be um, difficulty with reading. So mm-hmm. that would be a specific learning disability or learning disorder in reading, right? which is commonly known as dyslexia. Right. And so we use the term dyslexia to describe that. And so that is the kind of unexplained ability or inability to learn to read mm. despite, you know, what's happening in the classroom. So if they're in K to two, and so they're not just, they're not grasping um, the letter sound connection 
you know, mm -hmm. they're not able to decode uh, a simple um, consonant, vowel, consonant word. They don't know how to blend sounds together. And so that, that's what dyslexia looks like in younger students. And that is definitely where we're getting a lot of requests for support from parents and from schools. Right. And certainly, uh, and I've seen a bit of, you know, uh, dyscalculia is a fairly, fairly common one too right now. In, in essence, like dyscalculia is basically that same thing, but in regards to math, right? Yeah. And so the neat thing with dyscalculia, it's, it's not just reversing numbers. It's, mm. it's also having uh, a lack of understanding how numbers work. Mm. So a student um, or adult, um, right. you know, they can't grasp that the number 10 equals the word 10 equals the 10 dots on the page or they have difficulty with estimation. Um, oh. Telling time is also a key, you know, kind of indicator, the no concept of time. Um, sequencing, noticing patterns, those are all kind of the red flags for, for dyscalculia. Right, and what about um, recognizing the operators being used, plus versus, you know, uh, times, things like that. Does that ever come into play, especially those who have uh, dyscalculia and dyslexia, does that? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It, it, recognition of the number symbols or the, um, your addition and subtraction, that's all part of it as well. And so that's just, you know, what is addition and figuring that out in your head and understanding that that's combining two numbers together. Right. That is, that's a difficult concept or right. grouping numbers or having the sense of, you know, what does a hundred look like? Right. That's all part of dyscalculia. Okay, that's that's a fascinating one. And, you know, certainly in in my line of work, um, you know, both the all of these that we've talked about, you know, they they seem to come up a lot. There's one that there's a, you know, learning disability, or maybe you might want to call it a category of learning disabilities that uh, I'm I'm especially interested in because uh, I don't see a lot of apps or learning strategies that always uh, address this directly, and that's executive functioning. That one's a little bit harder to nail down than some of the other ones, isn't it? Yeah, so executive functioning itself is, it's not categorized as a learning disability. It's okay. kind of a, a symptom of a learning disability. Okay. And, so, and it's often tied into um, ADHD. Right. As well. So the ability to... Um, time management to be organized to plan mm -hmm. your day um to not be distracted by external factors time blindness is huge um hmm. or you know how how often do we get sucked into scrolling on our yeah. phones and be like where, where did that hour go yeah. you know or if you if you're engrossed in an activity because you're hyper focused on it you know, you can lose time really quickly as well. So that ability to stay on task and follow kind of a timeline for the day, that's all part of, you know, your greater executive functioning skills. And they have to be taught. I mean, some people are yes. good at it, um, but you, I think everyone requires a bit of discipline when it comes to that. So I know for myself, if I have a task that I'm putting off because mm -hmm. I don't want to do it, the door is closed. There's my phone is away. Yeah. There's nothing open on my computer except that word document so that I can stay focused on, on the tasks that I have to do. Yeah. And I wonder, do you think in, in a lot of ways, Ainsley, like 
the world we're living in now, it's almost working against us in terms of executive functioning, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, if you think about what is in front of you, I have Mm. a computer, I have a notebook, I have a cell phone, I have a smartwatch on, you know, that vibrates if I get a text message. So it's so easy to be distracted. Yeah, I I think so too. And, you know, even the, the apps that... Uh, we're exposing our children to, you know, TikTok comes first and foremost to my mind. It's almost like it's designed to, uh, you know, to, it's designed to mesh well with poor executive functioning or just a, a lack of uh, discipline in that sense and staying on one task. There you know, 10 second videos that you can scroll through a million in a very short period of time. And on different topics, yeah, right? So you're jumping from one thing to the next or one topic to the next. And and that's a lot. And there's some, um, there's a, the Pomodoro technique. There's a few top apps that you, that I've seen because I was trying to support an adult with that. And it's a counter that goes right on your computer screen or on your phone so that, you know, to, you know, have your 20 minute or your 25 minute work cycle with no distractions and then a five minute break. Um, there's lots of calendars online now too that will help you with planning and task management and scheduling um, that might be helpful too with someone who's having difficulty with their executive functioning. Yeah, and I I consider myself fairly strong, uh, maybe medium level in executive functioning, but I'm you know I also I work for Neil Squire, so you know I'm I'm big on apps. And so I've been really into the to-do app by Microsoft because it integrates with my calendar and you can create like categorized to-do lists. So I've just moved, right? So I had to sell my house, uh, do everything that had to do with that, buy a new house, paint it, uh, renovate it, everything that had to do with that. And and also have my child care taken care of all those things. If I didn't have that to-do list app on the go, I don't know what I would have done. I don't think I would have been nearly as efficient at the process. Yeah. And, and I mean, for a classroom situation, you know, we have our, for adults, we have our to-do list either in our agenda or on our phone. In, in a classroom, you can tell the students what are happening ahead of time by having, you know, the class, your to-do list for your class on the board. Yeah. So either on your smart board or your whiteboard. And that's beneficial for your kids with LDs, but it benefits the full class as well because mm. it's actually modeling, okay, how do we keep ourselves on track today? And that's a simple, you know, thing that can be done in the classroom to help with management. That's a great point. That's a very, that's a great uh, universally designed tool, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, there's absolutely <laughs> no one. Uh, yes, well, hey, you can tell I, you can tell I know that I know the jargon, I know the lingo. I've, I've been in it for a minute. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, and if you're the educator with skills, it will help keep you on task too, right? So to help you keep focused with your lesson plan. So it's, it's a good thing for everybody, and I, I think we as a society shouldn't be afraid to have accommodations that will help everybody it'll help those that need it but it benefits all yeah no i i totally agree um and so the next thing i wanted to kind of ask about is uh and i'm thinking of a friend and she has uh, a daughter 
that is that was recently diagnosed with uh, dyslexia. Um, they haven't done their psych ed assessment yet for, for a variety of reasons. There seem to be some issues there with timing. Can you bring me through the timeline of going through, of being, you know, self-diagnosed with an LD to having a psych ed assessment and accommodations and all that set up? Can we kind of go through that timeline? Yeah. Uh, in this province, it, yeah. it can be very painfully slow. Mm -hmm. for that to happen. Uh, it's been in the news. There is a shortage of school-based psychologists, so the ones that work for the school districts. Okay. Uh, the ones that are still working with the districts have immense caseloads right. ranging from all levels of need. Um, and unfortunately, those with, you know, suspected learning disabilities like dyslexia you know, often get put to the bottom of the pile because there's more complex cases that require that attention. So if a family is fortunate enough and has the means and maybe some additional health insurance, mm -hmm. you know, they can seek a private assessment right. um, from a, a qualified psychologist in the province. And their timelines and their wait lists vary. It depends on the psychologist and, and where they are. I know of some that, you know, can get people in within six months to be assessed. Um, there are others that I've talked to that are booking into the fall and winter of 2024. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's not um, it's not quick to get that complete diagnosis through a psychiatric assessment. Um, uh. Yeah, it's painful. I'm hmm. talking through a few parents right now online who, you know, they're like, we can't get one with the school. We don't have the means um, what do we do? How do we ensure that our child gets mm -hmm. what they need for support at the school level? Right. So that's why universal accommodations are so important. Yeah. And and I remember when I was uh, an employee at LDA and BF, I think the cost for that assessment uh, to to do it privately was something like eighteen hundred. Is it is that still around the accurate price, or do you kind of do you know or? It's it's gone up significantly. Yeah, not surprised. Um, like everything else, so yeah. it varies. There's a standard yeah. hourly rate that the college of psychologists recommends, which I think is two hundred and ten dollars right. an hour. Um, an assessment can take anywhere between twelve and twenty hours to complete. Wow. So you're looking at over two thousand dollars to three thousand dollars for a youth assessment, and I mean, of course, that varies. Um, depending on which psychologist you see, but right. that's the ballpark that families are facing. Yeah. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's, a, let's, let's be honest, that's a real barrier. I mean, you know, and here we are, we're in 2023, uh, grocery prices are rising, housing costs are rising, rent is rising. And to expect a family of, and what if, uh, you know, what if a family has three children that need to be assessed? The caught that burden uh, on on families that's huge. It's it's probably one of the harder conversations I have. But you know, hearing parents share, you know, I can't afford an assessment for my kid who's in yes. grade seven. Yeah, you know, or in grade three. If I was Oprah and could give everyone an assessment, <laughs> I would. <laughs> and you get but, an assessment, and you get an assessment. Yeah, and I mean, I I we're making light of it, but it yeah. it's really hard and. You know, kids struggle so much with, they know they're different. Right. They know they're not meeting 
grade level expectations. They know their writing looks different from their classmates. Mm -hmm. um, why do I hate math so much? It's hard. Right. And then, you're, you know, you're looking at the anxiety and the mental health and the self-esteem of eight, nine and 10 year olds because of school and their, their just their difficulty with, with school. And it's no, to no fault of their own. Right. Uh, it's probably no fault to the teacher because they're doing the best they can as well. Yes. But, you know, what do you, what do you do with that when you've got a, you know, a seven-year-old who says, I can't learn. Right. And my daughter is seven. So that really touches close to home. Yeah. Um, I we haven't we haven't seen any need for for accommodations yet. Uh, but you know, who, who knows? Um, so okay, so let's say you're one of the lucky ones and you're able to get in with a school psychologist and you've just had an assessment. What what's next? So that assessment, I would recommend that the family have a good understanding of what's in it yeah. um, and of the recommendations and accommodations uh, that are in that assessment. And they're usually at the back. It's right. when I look at an assessment, that's usually the first thing that I read right. um, about the student and they need to share that with the school. So with the resource team at the school or the classroom teacher, the mm -hmm. administrator, whoever makes up that, that resource team. Right. And then there will be the discussion around the possibility of a personalized learning plan for that mm -hmm. student mm -hmm. and justified accommodations for that student. So there's right. two types of accommodations that we can mm -hmm. get. There's universal accommodations, mm -hmm. which can be given to anybody. Right. Um, you know, you could have a headache one day and be like, I need to go sit in a corner and have a quiet space to do my work. Right. That's a universal accommodation. Gotcha. Justified accommodations are ones that are specific to the need of that student. Mm. So that could be the use of assistive technology right. in class, the support of a scribe or mm. a reader for assessments. It could be um, indicated that they need direct intervention support right. from the resource teacher so that students are pulled for intervention. Right. Uh, it could list a variety of things that this that the student needs. Right. And so so then once uh, they have that in play, then that's the point where you might reach out to an organization like Neil Squire, uh, assuming there's some assistive technology recommendations. And then and then it kind of goes from there. Right. Yeah. And so when I talk to families um, mm -hmm. and I see assistive tech recommended, it's like, OK, you need to phone Neil Squire. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can say yes, you you know, a laptop and assistive tech is great. Right. Um, but I, I I am not the expert and I and I tell parents that. And I'm sure that's been caused for the increase lately with your with your call volume. <laughs> Which we love. <laughs> and so, you know, students can have assistive tech provided um by the school district, but again, right. there's limited funds with that. Absolutely. And so so often, again, parents are providing the assistive technology for their student right. um, should the child need it. You know, why can't every kid in the classroom have access to a laptop or an iPad? You know, right. so like then everybody has access. And yeah. so depending on the time of year that you receive or a parent receives the, the assessment report, it can take some time to get the PLP into place. But if it's at the start of the school year, everything should be finalized by about mid-October. 
Um, and if families haven't received their new PLP for that year, they should be having a conversation with the school. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's, that's a pretty good overview. And a quick observation, it sounds like there's a lot of onus yeah. on the parents to do a lot, isn't there? There is. Um, and when I talk to parents, I say, you know, when we become parents, we don't get a handbook <laughs> for our, for our kids, as you know, right. With the That's seven right. And so when, when they're born with something that makes them unique and different from their classmates with a learning disability, again, we don't have that handbook. Mm. And so we're figuring it out on our own parents are. Yeah. So that's why we have a Facebook group. That's just for parents. Um, we have people who are going, I think there's a learning disability to parents who have been doing and working with their kid in their school for years. Oh, great. And so there's like the whole plate, you know, the whole spectrum of, of families on that journey. Mm -hmm. And it's a great place for them to share resources, to support each other. Um, and it, it's been really helpful for families to hear because I can't claim to know it all. Right. And so sometimes they share great apps or other resources that I haven't thought of or encountered. Oh, I mean, it's impossible to know it all. And especially in my side of things, the assistive, assistive technology, you know, side of things, you know, it's very hard keeping track of all the new technology. It's, you know, it's almost, you know, it's, you can't keep track of all of it. You're, you know, some of the best is going to rise to the top, but you know, there's going to be things that you'll always be surprised by, I think. Yeah. And I, I like assistive tech. I like that mm -hmm. a lot of it is built in uh, to the devices. So it does make it accessible that way. If you're able to have, you know, a laptop for your student, then a lot of the tech is built in, but it doesn't replace proper literacy teaching or literacy intervention or numeracy intervention. The kids still need to have the foundation because if they can't read the tab or know how to save a file, um, mm. then the tech isn't going to be as useful as it could be as a tool. That's that's a really great point. It, it really is a two-pronged approach, right? There's never, you know, the assistive tech is never going to be or shouldn't be a straightforward band-aid solution. It should be a part of a multi- tiered approach shouldn't it correct oh absolutely and i think it was charles who you yeah. know said to a group of parents you know tech is great but it's not the answer to everything and i was just like thank you absolutely. for saying that because yeah. it's quick it's it's quick to give a kid an ipad mm -hmm. and say there you go we've we've given you what you need right and i think it's it's a it's an attractive idea too isn't it we just oh, want to yeah. help people and so it's attractive to kind of think that the solution could be that simple. I wish, but, <laughs> you know, and I mean, they need to learn, the teacher needs to know how to support the student on that piece of technology, especially if it's something different. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was teaching yesterday, I had an overhead projector with, you know, sheets, you yeah. know, overhead projector sheets. So, I mean, in the classroom, technology changes quickly as well. And so, teachers aren't up to date. And so they need to be taught and trained and supported on the devices that their kids might have in the classroom. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a gap that could be filled in that regard, isn't there? In terms of uh, the training opportunities for teachers. Yeah. PL is really important. And I mean, they've got limited PL each year. Um, but then it's important to remember that we can have PL that, or professional learning, I should say, mm -hmm that they need right at that moment. Right. So they've 
got a student who comes in with a device and the teacher needs support and the student needs support. And so why can't they have that professional learning together at that yeah. time when you need it, that just in time professional learning? Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's again, it, just like I said about putting the onus on the parents. Now we're talking about onus being put on the teacher that I'm not, I'm not sure all of that should be put on them. I think that maybe there should be a little bit more automatic. We don't have to uh, request it. It should just be part of their training, maybe a little bit more in that direction. I don't know. Does, does that seem crazy or? Uh, no, I mean, I did have some assistive technology training in my BED, oh, but okay. I mean, that was ages ago. Yeah. And so I mean, it was, it's not, it's not current. So I mean, if yeah. you've got a teacher who's been working for a few years, of course, they should have some things updated. Um, but it's like, where are we going to find the time and the money and the resources and the specialty, right? Yeah. You know, to you know, the specialists that can help with those things. And that's across the board when it comes to any kind of disability, even. Right. Right. And I mean, you know, when it comes to uh, training, teachers certainly can reach out to organizations like you, like Neil Squire. Uh, you know, if it comes to technology training, we're always help, uh, happy to help to step in. Well, you know, we find that you know, there's so many teachers and there's so many new teachers and there's so much going on in their lives. Just just having them know that organizations like ours are available to step in and help pretty much at their request. Certainly I can speak to Neil Squire in that regard. It it's it's a challenge just getting teachers to know that resource is available to them. Yeah. And if they can reach out directly, I mean this past school year. I did a presentation every professional learning day this that was scheduled this year. And on one day I did two. Wow. <laughs> so I did an online in the morning and an in-person in the afternoon. And I'm booked like I have schools that are contacting me now for that first week yeah. when staff return building. So the end of August. Um, gotcha. you know, they're like, can we book you for or and into October now? I've got requests going into October and you know, it's great that organizations like I refer to Neil Squire. I'm like, hey, they can do presentations for mm -hmm. your staff, you know, or that one on one if there's a student involved. Yeah. Um, you know, and and people don't know what they don't know. Right. And so I never I all, you know, I never make anyone feel um that they should have known that we do these things. Of course, yeah. As much as we try to promote. Yeah. Um, I'm just happy to help. Yeah. And actually, uh, in regards to the training. We just uh, a few months ago finished developing and then delivered a training program to some master students that were going to UMB and it went really, really well. And they learned a lot that they weren't aware of. And I think uh, continuing to do, you know, to really brush up and really encourage that training uh, on a more, uh, frequent basis could could have some impact, I think. I, yeah, no, I agree. Definitely. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was that was a good that was a good walkthrough because I know, you know, it, it, it can be scary. It can be tough for parents to go through all of the emotional conversations and and all that of, oh, you know, it's almost like the fear of I'll say certainly as a man, I'll speak for men not wanting to go to the doctor. They know something's wrong. 
they don't want to go to the doctor. They avoid it and put it off. It's like, because it, it's like, as soon as uh, you put a finger on it and you say, okay, it is this, then it's real all of a sudden. But people need to kind of get over that a little bit. Um, can I ask you, what is a possible solution to that issue? Uh, I don't have one and I wish I did. Mm. I think it's, it's such a huge systematic uh, concern. And I know that the governing body for the, the College of Psychologists have their kind of wish list of, you know, what could improve the system. Um, you know, the Department of Education, EECD has, you know, their criteria. I, I, I wish I had a solution. I think if um, to support students with learning disabilities specifically, I think the shift to the new building blocks of reading curriculum we have here in New Brunswick is definitely a good starting place mm -hmm. to supporting students with literacy development with or without dyslexia. Right. There is still intervention that can be done, you know, without a diagnosis. So support can be provided. Um, we're walking that path with our seven-year-old daughter. Okay. So she's, she's getting support um, without a current diagnosis because we're waiting. Right. Um, and so we have a good working relationship with the school. Um, parents can be doing things at home. You know, I know kids are tired at the end of the day, but if you can squeeze in, you know, if you're reading together, you're, you practice decoding, right? you know, or counting or here, help me bake or fold socks and let's count at the same time. Anything, you know, that can be putting those kind of practice practicing and repetition in for the student will still help. Right. Absolutely. Good point. You, you might as well, you know, chip away at that and, uh, and improve those skills as you're kind of waiting for more official things to roll out, I suppose. Exactly. And I mean, families don't need, or adults, um, they don't need a diagnosis to talk to us right. to get support. Um, so, I mean, we have our Barton tutoring program, and so that's an intervention, a literacy intervention for students. It was mm -hmm. designed for dyslexia specifically, but we don't require a diagnosis for our program. And if parents are, um, you know, wondering what the program looks like, we can take yeah. the student through a screener. We can meet the student. Um, we can show everyone the material and just we, we will make sure it's a good fit. Yeah. for the student and and meet the needs we don't want um to waste anyone's time or their financial resources if the tutoring program is not going to be a good fit right. um but it's a diagnosis is not required no okay right yes and and that system was just coming into play when i was leaving the organization and it yeah. sounded like a big exciting new initiative how has it been going these past few years um, it has grown. So uh, when I started, there might have been 20, 15, 20 students just local within right. the Fredericton region. We now um, serve provincially through some online tutoring. Mm -hmm. So we can thank COVID for yeah. that. <laughs> uh, and our numbers fluctuate from, you know, as low as 60. It's the summertime. Mm -hmm. the students are taking the summer off up to over about 90 um, students. Yeah. So we run that program year round. Our Moncton chapter also runs a smaller program year round for students kind of in the Anglophone East area. Right. Uh, we've partnered with elementary literacy. So they provide tutoring support, um, Barton, 
for students in K to five that are within the Anglophone school district kind of boundary. Right. And that was just to help with, with capacity issues. So, I mean, at any time there could be, you know, well over 100 students receiving tutoring from LDA and B and our partners. That's, that's really fantastic to hear. So obviously the program's going well. So uh, it sounds like if if anyone's listening and uh, they have a child or know a child that's struggling with reading and, you know, you suspect learning disabilities may be a factor, definitely call LDA and B and ask about the Barton system. Absolutely. Yeah. And if, you know, that we do have to run a wait list sometimes. Okay. Um, but we try to accommodate as many people as possible. If a family has to wait, it might be a semester. So about three months um that they might have to wait but we try not to make it too long because we know that the intervention is important and so is time right yeah that makes a lot of sense and what did you say you might have said this already what's the ideal age age range for that system um so we want to make sure that they have at least one year of school Um, so after kindergarten so grade one Uh, We've had six-year-olds come in and Mm -hmm. they have the attention span of six-year-olds, but we work (laughs) with them. And I worked with a, with a man and he was 53. So So we can, there's no age limit. Uh, Other than Uh, one year of school, ideally. Yeah. Just, just to make sure that they've got, you know, the ability to work with the tutor one-on-one. Right. And I suppose that also you, that period of time, you know, you might see whether, uh, you know, whether it's a learning disability, whether it's a different kind of developmental challenge that probably kind of needs to be sorted out a little bit, I suppose, or. Yeah. And instruction, we've got to give, you know, kindergarten the time to, to do its thing as well. Right. So, um, because sometimes instruction could, you know, also limit or cause difficulty with learning to read. Right. And uh, and that's great. We got right into the Barton subject because my question was actually going to be to uh, to talk about the the services you offer. Just so Barton is your literacy program. What other kind of services do you offer that you might want to kind of let people know about? So we also offer um, tutoring in French. So that's new to us. Um, we've been running a French tutoring program for about a year. We started as a pilot um, this time last year with funding that we had received from Peterbilt Atlantic, so the trucking company. Mm -hmm. And so it's primarily for French immersion students. However, we have had some students um, come to tutoring that have gone through the Francophone school system. Mm -hmm. And so we we do an an entry assessment on all of the students to ensure that we're putting them in the the correct level or module for where they need. Um, And so a student could start at the very beginning with the material that we have, or they could start at level three module 11 and only have to go through I think seven modules after that in order to complete you know kind of fill that gap with what they're missing so we have French Um, as I mentioned before we do have a Facebook group for parents we also have one that is specific to educators so I you know we're able to share education specific material teachers can ask questions in a space among other educators Um, And then we also have chapters across the province. So we have a chapter in Moncton. We are revitalizing the St. John chapter. Mm -hmm. And we also have one in Woodstock. And so they all, yeah, there is there. The chapters are a great touch point for, you know, funneling support from from each local community. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so the other support that we provide is the kind of one-on-one consultation. And right. so that is if someone, an, a parent or an adult, you know, they can self-refer to us for information, for resources. Um, we can meet in person or online, or we can do it through a phone call. And, you know, we really get the background story of the person that we're speaking to. And mm-hmm. um, we ensure that we're going to give them like the tailored information that they need. Right. So it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, if for anything learning disability related in the province, you're the you're the touching off point. You, you know, start with LDA and B, have that conversation and sort of start start that process. Absolutely. Yeah. And if and if we're not the right fit for whatever reason, I don't just say thank you for calling. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to, you know, provide that next step if we're not going to be the correct service or support uh, for the individual. Yeah, no, that I that had always been something that I noticed about about LVA and B uh, when I was working under Andre. You know, he hated to say he couldn't say. You know, you can't just say no. We can't. There's there's always going to be something we can do. Was kind of yeah. the attitude. Yeah, and if it's not us, like, and and that's why you know I've learned a lot from working with the other disability organizations, mm-hmm. you know, I reach out to my counterparts from across the province and say, Hey, I've got, you know, this person, and I think they might be a better fit for your services. Um, and so I, you know, I don't want to just be a no, thanks for calling. Right, exactly. And, and because, you know, we're all, we're all connected. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the same with Neil Squire, you know, the, we recognize that maybe a speech language pathologist is, is a person that you want to bring into the mix. Maybe it's uh, St. John Deaf and Hard of Hearing that that needs to be consulted. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I think, and that community connection is so important. I think it's something that I don't I don't think everyone does it like that. But it seems like in New Brunswick, the disability organizations have really really like to work together and band together in a pretty impressive way. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And as a new executive director who is trying to figure out brief writing and policy and how to work with government, mm-hmm. you know, working closely with my counterparts in the other or- organizations was really key because I, was, I knew I could ask a question if I needed support or have someone kind of guide me through a process. Should I be like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> you know, who do I talk to in government about this? I know I could ask the counterpart in one of the other organizations. Right, right, exactly. Okay, no, that's great. So, so, and by the, oh, you mentioned the Facebook group a couple times. How, how would someone find that Facebook group? Would they just say LDA and B parents or do you know what like the group is called or? Yeah, so it's um, LDA and B. T-A-A-N-B parent group. Yeah. Um, and then it's the same title for teachers. So, and but okay. with just teacher group. That's that's really great. That's a great thing to put in place. And uh, and I might steal that idea from you, Ainsley. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel like that'd be something that could be added to the to the AT help desk. It could be kind of cool to create that space for for both teachers and parents. I really like that idea. We have probably with the parent group, it's well over five, 600. I haven't looked lately, but it's yeah. well over 500 people. We're pushing about the same number with, with educators That's a good as number. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's well, you know, me and social media. Yeah. <laughs> 
who knew I had to be an expert in that too when I signed up? No, oh, I know none of us knew Ainsley. We all we all are uh, discovering that as we go. I think and and first, like for me, I, I'm not the biggest social media guy, uh, so it can be hard for me sometimes. Oh yeah. Yep. So I mean, and I mean, I like the networking aspect of yes, it. Yes, well, of course. Which really, which is really key. It, it takes no time to add a link to another resource yeah. um, for a parent who has a question. So I mean, yeah. it's it's good that way. And I've had a lot of parents come up and be like, "Oh my gosh, I saw your post on Facebook, and I've got a question." And you know, which is really great because it you know it it makes us really approachable yeah. um, for people who need the help. Yeah, and I think it's so important to have the conversation, see other people's, you know, fears, hopes, dreams, all that, all that real stuff that can be hard for people to maybe approach on their own or without, you know, having some other stories or some other context out there. No, definitely. And I mean, it, it lets parents know that they're not the the only one. Right. Uh, experiencing this i mean everyone's experience is different but they're not the only one and then that needs to be said to kids as well yeah that they're say. not the only one with you know difficulty with reading they're not the only one with dyslexia you know and it's still so very kind of hidden there's mm -hmm. a lot of shame i think mm -hmm. still around um learning yeah. You know, and if you're not learning as fast as your peers or if your grade isn't the same, mm -hmm. you know, there's there could be a reason for it. Um, and so there's still a lot of kind of, you know, hiddenness about that. Yeah, no, uh, I think you're right. Although I think it's like it's definitely improved even even over the last, yes. you know, 10 years, five years, huge improvements. You know, as an example, my uh, my nieces and nephews uh, they are super bright kids with learning disabilities and they very matter of factly approached me and discussed and she said, oh, I have dyslexia and, and blah, blah, blah. And just the tone of her voice and the way she presented that information to me, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was no shame wrapped up in it. It was very matter of fact. And this is something that's going on with me and this is how we deal with it. And it, it was really uh, heartwarming to see that uh, at least the way she presented it to me that lack of of shame and we have kids that have gone through our Barton tutoring program who now do to um, do school-based presentations that's great yeah they'll do yeah so they'll do uh, presentations during uh, October which is learning disability awareness month and yeah. market red for dyslexia and so they'll do you know presentations for their school and you know my name is and I have dyslexia and they, you know, they share with their peers what that is and, and kind of what that, that means. Oh, that's, that's really special. That's really, that's really brave of them. And I think that, that could have a, a lot of positive impact on, on those kids that are just not quite ready to admit or come out of their shell and say, okay, I could use a bit of help. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, and part of that though, is having that diagnosis, right? So that you mm. know what's causing it. So I remember one of our former students um, in tutoring, she had joined tutoring and then had her assessment while she was receiving support. And she came in one day and she's like, the, her look had changed. Mm. And she just knew, okay, it's just the way my brain is. You right. know, there's nothing, I am smart. Right. I I can learn, 
it's just the way my brain is wired. I just have dyslexia and things are going to be different. And so, I mean, she carried herself completely different the day she came in after she got her results. It was really neat to, to see. Right. It kind of, it kind of, when you, when you get through that process and you have the assessment, it kind of takes out the fear and the not knowing and turns it into a more practical and logical conversation. Yes. Instead of an emotional one in, in some ways, I think. Um, what I've been doing with some of my colleagues when we talk is we do a little case study. And so I wanted yeah. to do that today, but I want, because you're involved and your scope of uh, what you do is more involved in the learning strategies and the accommodation side of things, I kind of want to get your input and then maybe I'll add some assistive technology recommendations on top of that. Does that sound okay? Fantastic. Okay, so uh, Chris is a grade four student who's recently diagnosed with dyslexia and dysgraphia. He has no prior experience with laptops, iPads, or assistive technology, but he is willing to try to improve his reading and writing skills. What learning strategies or accommodations would you recommend? So I think for um, for Chris, he should still have some intervention to support his dyslexia. So the mm -hmm. reading and spelling portion of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would be any structured literacy approach would be really beneficial for him. Um, so something like Barton would be an example, Orton-Gillingham. There's loads of other kind of options for that. Um, for the dysgraphia, so dysgraphia is the inability or the difficulty with writing. That could be the way that your writing looks. You have a difficulty with capital letters, with the formation of letters, with spelling, spacing. Mm -hmm. That's all kind of tied in into the dysgraphia. So some support with um, occupational therapy might be helpful. Right. He might need a, um, a fat pencil, we call them, mm -hmm. or a pencil grip you know, learning how to sit properly to to write can go a long way to support um, the handwriting, as well as, you know, what was his handwriting instruction like? Mm. Um, and so really going back to the basics of this is how we make an A, this is how we make a B. So a lot of that opportunity to, to practice those skills. Um, and then classroom accommodations for both would be to having, you know, their notes, and handouts provided to them so that they're able to sit and listen to the classroom discussion instead of having to handwrite everything down that the teacher says. Because I know that if I'm writing and trying to spell and write and, and keep my letters looking good, I'm not listening maybe to what the teacher's saying and I might miss something. So by having you know, the notes provided, it, it, that's a really good accommodation, as well as the ability for the student to use point form or have a graphic organizer. So they're not writing a full paragraph, they're just writing shorter points. And that allows them to stay focused on what they need to do as opposed to thinking about like the whole the whole thing that they need to write down. Um, there's loads of accommodations yeah. um, for both dyslexia and dysgraphia. Uh, I really like I really like that answer because it it really it really starts at the base level, doesn't it? Because what I'm, you know, what I'm going to bring to the table or what, uh, you know, an AT technician is going to bring to the table is going to be, you know, involved. It, it's going to, it's not really going to be as focused on the building blocks, which are, are so, so important. 
So you really, it really is for the benefit of everyone to have that holistic approach, isn't it? Where, you know, you can't just say, okay, we're done with writing with physical motor, you know, you know, using your hand to write, uh, you know, it's, it's probably better to go back a couple steps and attack that instruction and um, try and, you know, reform those initial habits a little bit. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I remember talking to a school one time and they're like, how do you tell if a student has dysgraphia or if it's just messy handwriting? Mm. And so my question back to the, the room of teachers was, well, what, how do you approach teaching handwriting instruction? And they said very little, like, mm. so there's very little opportunity to, for that, you know, um, practice. And so I said, well, that could be part of it. So if students aren't exposed and don't have opportunity to practice, you know, then it, it, you know, it could be instruction or it could be the LD and not giving the student the opportunity to practice enough. So um, a gifted student needs exposure to a new resource, you know, or a new concept, maybe five, six, seven times. A student with a learning disability needs exposure over 200 times. Hmm. So a lot so of repetition. A lot of repetition and exposure and practice are key for, you know, for multiple learning disabilities. Okay, I really like that. So then, so then I'll step in and say, okay, let's say, you know, we've, we've got to that point, we're seeing a little, a little bit of improvement, but maybe they want to explore some technology as well. Um, just to briefly speak to that, the, so Microsoft 365 is now sort of omnipresent within the New Brunswick school system, as I'm sure you're aware, right? Yeah. So yeah. when it comes to laptops and uh, and uh, writing, word processing, that sort of thing, there's there's a good amount of support there. At least there's a system in place that you know, and, and I guess it's not it it's it is still quite new, but there's a system that people are sticking to, and there's a bit of commonality there, which I think is good. Uh, I think it's really helpful for. Um, not in terms of not overwhelming teachers with all these different options. Yeah. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. But I tend to think I tend to think that laptops work a little bit better for maybe like middle school and and above versus iPads being a bit better for the younger uh, students. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I I like I kind of agree with that um, as well, and especially as they get older and assignments get longer and more um, detailed. You know, typing on a keyboard is much easier than mm -hmm. typing on an iPad because you might not have the you know the additional keypad. Yeah. So I like that transition to to a laptop for the middle school level, definitely. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And again, with um, Microsoft three six five being in place. Uh, and then, and then, and notice, uh, we're saying iPad, not tablet. And there's a reason for that. And it's because Apple has become very proficient at creating a device that is absolutely packed with assistive technology from the box. Oh, yes. Um, and I mean, you know, Samsung tablets, like uh, Android tablets, rather, you know, there's 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 things there and they're catching up, I think. But it's it's really hard to beat iPads for what they can do in terms of all of the different read aloud features. 
all of the, you know, and, and we we were talking about um, attention span, like uh, built in technology, like guided access, where you turn it on and that student can only access the app or screen that your teacher or parent has, has essentially assigned and it's password locked. Um, and that technology is built into an iPad. Uh, so I think that's, I think that's a great, uh, a great, a great tool for that. And it's also universally designed. But then <laughs> that being said, you know, we're talking about cost and burden on the parents. iPads yeah. are not inexpensive devices. No, they're not. And if you buy an old one, it's going to be slow. You know, you might get a deal. It's going to be slow. You, It might actually add to a, the frustration if you buy a new one, you're probably looking at about what fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars, something in that range. Yeah, for the larger ones, definitely. And I know that many schools, though, um, they fundraise and they have support from their PSSCs or their homes, home and schools, yes. where they purchase small class sets of of iPads. So they're, you know, they're common in schools and in classrooms. But right. the student who needs one doesn't often have a dedicated one for them all of the time. Right, which, you know, the consistency would be nice and having a dedicated device would be nice, right? Yeah, it, but, it's, you know, you know we'll, we'll take what we can get sometimes and, and but, you know, by having a class set that's shared, yeah. even if it's part of the time, the student who's using it because they need it, they don't stick out as much. And that's so if point. they're not really sure, right, if they're not, if they're like, I don't want to talk into the tablet because you know, no one else is, but if everybody's doing it, it makes it a lot easier for the student um, to use the assistive tech that they're, that they're allowed to have. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it normalizes it. Uh, certainly, I remember I had done a, an interview at NASIS Elementary, and then uh, subsequent to that, that was actually the school where my daughter uh, attended elementary um, and they, they, you know, rolled out a gigantic cart of shared iPads. And so they've got a pretty good, you know, sharing program in place there. Yeah. It makes it a little more obtainable that way. If the schools are, are able to do that, I realize not every school can. No, but it's a best practice for sure. Isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. Have at least, uh, and I mean, I feel like I feel like if we if we really really wanted to and we really really made people aware of the importance of this, I feel like they every school could reasonably have at least a few iPads. Like it, that's not that huge of an ask, I don't think. No, I don't. I don't think either. And it's you know supporting students with learning disabilities needs to be um, a priority within the school it yeah. needs to be a priority within the district and then also with you know from the department of education as well so it, it's got to be understood and unfortunately there's still some pockets and and schools and places where there's a not a full understanding of learning disabilities and how to provide those students with support a lot of it it doesn't have to be high tech Right. You know, you can use graph paper to help a student with dyslexia or dyscalculia in math class so right. that their columns line up or to turn a sheet of loose leaf sideways. You know, so there's stuff that can be done, accommodations that can be done that are affordable 
mm-hmm. you know, that are very low tech. A highlighter right. is right. is low tech. Right. Um, so it doesn't always need to be, but we just a better understanding of learning disabilities needs to be had. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and you know, and that's what those those groups that you created are for. And and uh, you know, I think the more people become aware and and the more that representation in popular culture uh, increases, I, I think you know, learning disabilities aren't really that represented uh, represented in popular culture, and when they are, they're not. It's not always they don't always do a great job representing that. Do you agree? Or there's there's the celebrities that talk about it occasionally that that have that have learning disabilities, but we need to remember too that it's um it, they are common. It's probably one of the more common disability types it can affect it can happen to anyone um it there's no gender specificness Mm -hmm. to learning disabilities um it doesn't matter what economic class you're in it can affect anybody and there's definitely family history Mm -hmm. um with lds as well so just increased knowledge and understanding as well as the the understanding that a student or an adult with LD has the full capacity to learn and to learn new things. It just takes them maybe a little bit longer and um, a lot more practice and probably a bit slower mm-hmm. than, than, you know, someone who is neurotypical right. and the capacity there is to learn. They're not being lazy. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just hard. That's a great term neurotypical and it's, it's being used a lot more. I hadn't, I basically never heard that term in mainstream pop culture. And now all of a sudden I'm hearing it a lot. So it's great that people are recognizing the, you know, that term and kind of understanding what it means. Yeah. And, and I, I say to parents and to kids, cause I, I do talk to the, the kids when they come into the office, I say our brains are weird mm-hmm. and the way they work are weird. And I don't know what learning is like for you. And so it's important that students can take ownership of their learning and say, I find it hard when right. I get distracted in class when, or I like it when I'm able to sit at the front or wear my head noise canceling headphones, you know? So it's the more that we talk about it and involve the kids in their decisions about their education, I think we're building better adults by allowing that to happen. Oh, that's a great point. I like that. Very, uh, very macro focused and future minded. I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been such a great discussion. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to pitch that's going on in the organization that people should know about? Any last uh, last words? That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to to recognize that kids and adults with learning disabilities uh, can be successful. They will get to where they want to go. They can have the job uh, or career that they want to have. They just need to have the proper support and intervention when they're in school Mm -hmm. so that they can set their path forward. I think we need to do a better job of supporting kids in this province with learning disabilities there are parents that are paying a lot of money and out of pocket for things that should just be universal within the school system Mm -hmm. do i have the answers to solving those problems no 
Um, I really wish I did because the, you know, the parents that we talk to, some are hopeful, but some are, you know, they feel really defeated uh, and that they've let their kids down. Mm. And so my job too is to build them up and we build the kids up and, you know, show them that things can get done. Okay. Well, thank you again for your time today. Well, this was fun. It was my first podcast. So who knew I was going to have to do that as an executive director? (laughs) Yeah, no, this is great. I'm really happy with how it went. Perfect. Well, enjoy your day. It's not sunny here in Fredericton. Uh, it's, it's, it's back and forth here. It's, it's been quite a spring, hasn't it? Oh my gosh. It's so wet, but that's okay. I know. It means less fun this year. So yeah, that's right. true. Take your blessings. Okay. Well, we'll be chatting. Ainsley. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye.